My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And this week we have to do this like it's quarantine again. Yeah. Be a distance. Grace is, Grace is in Cape Breton and I'm here in Halifax with Mark. So Mark and I are in the studio, which I will say is about 42 degrees right now. Um, <laughs> that might be a slight exaggeration, but really only slight. Um, it is very hot. We've got the lights dimmed. It's very moody here uh, tonight in Halifax. <laughs> it always Mark is. and I are having some quality time together recording the podcast. <laughs> We've hit the point in maritime summers that I hate, where it's just like constantly mm. humid and sticky and gross. It's just sweat. Yeah. It's <laughs> just sweat. Yesterday, I like <laughs> went out in the evening and I like threw on a jean jacket and it was wet. Just from like sitting in my closet all day. I was like, uh, gross. That's disgusting. But uh, we're going to keep the theme of of heat and and hotness rolling <gasps> with this week's uh, Literally, minute. figuratively, both. Also, I did not plan that segue. Oh my gosh. We're getting really good at this. You're getting really good. <laughs> so this week, the minute we are doing is the Segane fire of 1870 Ooh. which is one of my favorites but i feel like it's one that doesn't get mentioned all that much i don't know why it just really stood out no, to me you're right there's not a lot of narration there is a little bit of narration and actually i have so after researching it and then watching the heritage minute today uh, I realized that I have like two major beefs with it, one of which takes place during the acting part and one that takes place during mm-hmm. the narration. So it's essentially a family. There's a forest fire. They have to leave their home and they're trying to get like their mm-hmm. livestock yeah. out of the house before it burns down. But they essentially just have to run into a river and then they're sitting or floating on this piece of driftwood the whole night oh, in the river. Yeah, yeah. I totally Yeah, I totally remember this. Yeah, one. very dramatic. It literally they have this music Super that they dra- keep playing the every time they cut to something dramatic. It goes like duh, 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 and then it cuts to like glass breaking. Duh, 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 yeah. Duh. And then yeah. like cuts to them running into the river. But there's one point where the daughter in the family, she's like, I can't swim. I can't swim. And it's literally the yep, dad just going, yep. yes, you can. <laughs> That's not how swimming works. It's like, yes, you can. You can now. <laughs> I don't know. And That's how my grandma taught my mom to swim. <laughs> just blind face. She was like, I can't swim. And my grandma was like, my grandma was, I, yeah. <laughs> she's a Hucker in the water. But then the other part that I have like a gripe with, or at least the way that it was written, I think is a little confusing because at the very end they have this narration and it explains how like the, this fire like raged for 150 kilometers. It destroys all this land. Mm -hmm. And it says one family survived by dousing themselves all night against the searing heat. One family among the thousands whose resourcefulness and courage shaped the character of this land. But the way that that is written makes it sound like only one family survived the fire. 
That's what I thought. Which is not true at all. There's actually not that many oh. deaths. Like, we'll get into it. But I think the, oh. the number cited is usually five people died in this fire. Oh, because I was going to say that episode totally makes it sound like that family who dunked themselves in the river and forced their child to, like, swim yeah, and then <laughs> is the only family that lived. And, like, everybody <laughs> had she not been that close to drowning. Dead. Yeah, no, it's like. Oh. And lots of families did that, too. It's not like when you read it, it's like, OK, they're saying one of the families, but it sounds like they're saying yeah. one family and that's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, the 90s were very dramatic. You know, it was all about that. All about that drama. No improvement. So uh, I feel like that might have something to do with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are just like, that's good. They needed just a, do it. They needed it someone was like, who knows, uh, like prepositional phrases and stuff to like figure it out for them. <laughs> yeah. It was like our first guest, Julian Richings, he said that, you know, they just pumped out a couple in a weekend or so. Yeah. It was probably like that. They were just like, oh, like that one's good. Next. Like. Next. Yeah. Also, yeah. The, the costuming in this one is like not. Not terrible, but also the like the little girl yeah. clearly has like '90s bangs, like a heavy like oh, blunt yeah. bang. It's like kids didn't have that haircut. <laughs> They're like, okay, and that's enough for the river scene. Uh, bring out the whiny girl in the midwife episode All and right, roll go. it. <laughs> and then they're like, cut to the totem poles, Emily Carr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the thing that always Just roll stuck with through. me about this one was them in the water and then the father is like make sure their hair stays wet and so it's constantly them like pouring cups of water (laughs) like cupping water in their hands and pouring it over their heads throughout the minute yeah which I guess is so it doesn't singe yeah because as we'll get into this fire was really 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 hot um but (laughs) spoiler alert fires get hot okay but was it not in the winter no it takes place during the spring Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. That makes that makes more sense. I guess like in if I remember the Heritage Minute correctly, for some reason I don't know if there was like still like some snow on the ground or something. I remember it looking like it was cold, but I watched it today. It's been a long time since I've seen it. There, there's no snow in it, but I could see where you're, it's coming from because I'm pretty sure that they they probably filmed it in spring because the trees don't look very like full of right leaves and stuff. Yeah. It's not very green. It's still very like yellow, kind of that. Yeah. Just after winter thaw look. Great look for okay. everyone. <laughs> Great look. Super aesthetic. Stu- super aesthetic. All the Visco girls just love it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to it. be young. <laughs> to be young oh, and hip. To be young and hip. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do Saguenay Fire of 1870. We're going to also talk a little bit about like the history of that region and then the reports that come after the fire, all that fun stuff, natural disasters. It's a it's a quintessential heritage minute theme. I'm excited. All right. So the Saguenay River is about 700 kilometers long, and it begins at Lac Saint-Jean, then cuts through the Laurentian Highlands of Quebec. So the area called Tadoussac at the confluence of the St. Lawrence was a meeting point for the Algonquin peoples of the Shield and the Haudenosaunee of the St. Lawrence River Valley. Jacques Cartier visited the mouth of the Saguenay River in 1535 and began writing and collecting stories about the Kingdom of Saguenay, 
According to cool. the Haudenosaunee, there was a kingdom to the north of blonde men rich with gold and furs in a place they Ooh, called Saguenay. Fancy. Can I also point out that I would say that at least a third of our episodes, Have we Jack mentioned, Cartier or remember? you mentioned, well, no, I was going to say you mentioned the Haudenosaunee. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there a heritage minute about them? Uh, nope. Um, well, they're like, in them. Um, yeah, but, I'm but not think. like, but not really. I'm trying to think. But they're not there called the Haudenosaunee. They're called... Um, Iroquois. Iroquois, yeah. Which... I've been calling them Haudenosaunee because I just remember that Iroquois was not the correct term. But exactly. maybe I've been wrong this whole time. Um, but yeah, like... Impossible. I'm sure there You're is brilliant. <laughs> we can't set that standard. We have to keep expectations very, very low. <laughs> um, no, nothing. No, I, I think there is one now. But I'm not positive if they are Haudenosaunee. Um, it's okay. it's one that like couples with Laura Secord. It's it's part of the same conflict of War of eighteen twelve. Mm. Um, but they might be Mohawk. Okay. I might be wrong. Also, the Haudenosaunee mm, okay. do live more in the United States, so that is part of it. Right. But yeah, they're right. boss bitches, and they just show up all the time, and they're like, mm-hmm. "Well, we've decided to fuck with shit," and you're like, "Oh God." <laughs> But yeah, so the Haudenosaunee are telling Jacques Cartier that there is this land of blonde rich men to the north, and they call that Saguenay. And Jacques Cartier is like, damn, that's where I want to be with the blonde rich guys. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, those are my people. Those are the (laughs) guys that I want to be with. Can I kiss them? Wait, whoops, what did I say? What? (laughs) What? So Jacques Cartier then describes finding the Saguenay River on his second voyage in 1536. And with him, he had Chief Donnacona's son, who told him that there is this path to the kingdom of Saguenay. Okay. Well, while he was imprisoned in France in the 1530s, Donnacona himself had also told stories about it, claiming that it had great mines of silver and gold. And so French explorers would go to Canada looking for this lost kingdom. But obviously it's not real or there. Today, it's typically right. mis- just understood as a myth, either as Europeans hmm. misunderstanding the Haudenosaunee or the Haudenosaunee trying to trick the French. So being like, hey, if you want good stuff, go north rather than like, yeah, you should keep going west. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's clever. I hope that's what happened. (laughs) However, some people. You want to hang out with you want to hang out with rich white dudes? Go. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I know what you came for. And let me tell you, (laughs) there's this whole kingdom of it just to the north. And they're not here. (laughs) Keep following the river. (laughs) Don't come back, please. Ever. Ever. (laughs) Thanks. So some people speculate that it was a passed down oral tradition of the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois meeting Norse people from who were settled in Newfoundland. So because the Norse people would often trade with 
indigenous peoples with metals. So they would give them like metal goods and then the indigenous people would give them some kind of like craft or um, food or some other resource. So some people think it's this passed down oral tradition. I hope it's just them messing with the Europeans because that's funnier. But anyways, (laughs) so that's the origins of Saguenay, the region Saguenay. So the kingdom of Saguenay is obviously a fantasy, but the river is real. And Jesuit missionaries were able to reach the modern day Shakutami in 1647. By 1600, the first trading post in Canada was set up on the Saguenay River, and the river remained an avenue for the fur trade and later the timber trade well into the 19th century. So it's a pretty important river. We love our rivers in Canada. It's all about the rivers. Sure do. Especially those upper Canadians, man. They love their rivers. Basically, all of early Canadian history was like, if it didn't happen in the St. Lawrence River Valley, I don't know her. I don't want to talk about it. Like, that's all of early Canadian history. (laughs) Yeah. And then later people were like, wow, there's actually a lot of other regions and places that we should talk about. And they were like, nope. No, thank you. No. Nope. <laughs> Upper and happened. lower Canada <laughs> is all I want. <laughs> yeah. Screw so those major... maritime provinces. Who Who is she? I don't know her. <laughs> the major settlement in the region was founded in 1676. So that's Shakutami. At the time of its founding, mm-hmm. the Saguenay and the Shakutami rivers had been used as waterways by the Montagne tribes. The Shakutami name means the end of the deep water in the Innu language. After the British mm-hmm. seized Lower Canada, the Shakutami trading post continued to operate until 1782 as the fur trade had moved further west of the Great Lakes. Nice. The fur trade was not the only thing people bringing people to the Saguenay River Basin, though. No, no, no. It's a booming place. Everybody wants to be there. We got to go to Saguenay, It's a hot apparently. spot. It's a hot spot for immigrants. Uh, that's because of the agriculture that was developing in the region and along the St. Lawrence River Valley. In 1617, Louis Hebert, which I think is like Saint Hebert, potentially, like, oh, you know, okay. the company, I think the region might yeah, be yeah. named after this guy. I'm not positive of that. Oh, that's, that's cool. That's just me saying stuff. That's, um, that's just you hypothesizing with your history skills and knowledge. Just some hypothesizations. You out here just hypothesizing. <laughs> shit. They have great meat pies. Like, you can buy them frozen. St. <laughs> Hubert, like... Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Not me. I don't make great meat pies. I've never tried. Mm. Oh, but meat pies. These oh, frozen man. ones you can buy. Delicious. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they make great pies. They and... Pie. <laughs> and they began to raise cattle and to clear small plots for cultivation. Oh, it's booming. <laughs> Things are going well. <laughs> small scale clearings ensured settlers would plant cereal grains peas and corn but only six hectares were under cultivation by 1625 so it's not booming oh shoot it's not i was gonna say (laughs) this is like a bloody game of Catan, but uh this is a failing game of Catan. (laughs) things are not failing out the robbers just hanging out (laughs) 
No they one's making any moves. No one's moving around. No one can collect their sheep or peas or yeah. corn in this situation. Yeah. Beginning in 1612, the French crown granted fur monopolies to a succession of companies in exchange for commitments to establish settlers. So it's essentially like you can't just hightail it out of town. If you want to be <laughs> here, you've got to like live here and you've got to bring other people with you. You gotta be here. You gotta, you gotta represent. Be here. <laughs> the charter companies brought some settlers who used oxen, mules, and horses to clear land, but agricultural self-sufficiency was not established until the 1640s. Furthermore, marketing agricultural produce was difficult. In 1663, Louis the Fourteenth reasserted royal control and promoted settlement by families. Intendant Jean Talon, who was in our Frontenac episode. Yeah. Cool guy. <laughs> Reserved lots for agricultural experimentation and demonstration. Introduced crops such as hops and hemp, which are the funnest crops. Ooh. <laughs> Beer. Yes, <weed>. buddy. <laughs> Let's get those growing. Let's it's get like, those prospering. This is going to be a fun place. It's like, you know why people aren't coming? Because there's no booze. That's what you need. Let's get some hops. And when on people the go. have booze, it's like if you give a mosa cookie, it's like if you give a guy a pint, he's gonna need a J to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna make like an analogy where it's like teach a man to fish, he eats for his whole life. Like give a man oh, a, no. give a man a pint, he drinks for a night. <laughs> teach a man to brew beer, he drinks all the time. <laughs> he drinks for a year. He drinks for a year. You can make it oh rhyme. Oh my god. Oh, brilliant how are we so smart That's, and beautiful we're, and talented? Uh, yeah how is it possible that we can be such All a triple threat things. how can we be smart such a pretty funny package? how how'd we do it <laughs> we do it it's so exhausting it is yeah Whew, i'm tired just thinking about it <laughs> Um, and then they also started raising different kinds of livestock, but that's not as interesting as the hops. So by yeah, 1721, <laughs> farmers in New France produced almost 100,000 hectoliters of wheat and smaller amounts of other crops annually and owned about 30,000 cattle, swine, sheep, and horses. So now we've got well, that sounds good. boom in town. Yeah. yeah. After cool. 1763, the arrival of British traders and new markets opened for Canadian farm produce within Britain's mercantile system, which is basically just a system that says if you're part of the British Empire, you can only sell to the British Empire. You can't go to other places. It's not free market. So Francophone settlers were dominant in the area, but there were also Anglophone settlers. So British subjects purchased some seigneuries. So those are the breakdowns of the land. And on those lands, they settled Scottish, Irish, and American immigrants. New Englanders also settled the eastern townships of Quebec and other areas. And these Anglophone settlers promoted some new techniques of wheat and potato cultivation in newspapers that they found. Yes. Get me that newspaper. We love those potatoes. Yeah. The Potato be, Times. It's a new, yeah. PEI's official paper. <laughs> potato Times. It can be added More to our potatoes. list of uh, <laughs> yeah. favorite magazines. <laughs> yeah. Wheat and Potato Times. Diddly Dee. Ooh. Oh. Diddly Dee. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Have you seen the latest edition of the Potato Times? <laughs> it's killer. Yes. 
So wheat exports enjoyed modest growth before 1800, but then began to lag far behind Upper Canada. The failure of Lower Canadian agriculture has been blamed by some on the relative unsustainability of the region's climate and soils for growing wheat and the only crops with significant export potential. So essentially, Mm -hmm. it's just like you're trying to grow stuff that you shouldn't be growing in this area. And so the region experiences like who makes those rules? (laughs) What? Who makes those rules about the soil or about what's what's worth? Oh, I thought. Okay, I misunderstood. (laughs) I thought you meant that like someone was like, no, you shouldn't be growing those things here. But you're just saying that it like wasn't prospering well because of like natural elements. I was like, who's this dude walking around being like, "Mm, those sunflowers not there. (laughs) God. God was the one yeah. that was like, you shouldn't grow that He's here. just like smiting shit. He's Mother just nature. Like, zap, zap, zap. <laughs> I Leaves don't want potatoes. potatoes anymore. <laughs> zap. <laughs> and that's how the potato blight happened. <laughs> but if you really want to know how the potato blight happened, you should listen to our second episode. Irish orphans. We talk yes. all about potato famine, our favorite topic on the podcast. We'll, <laughs> we'll tell you all about it. By the 1830s, Lower Canada had ceased to be self-sufficient in wheat and flour and increasingly began importing from Upper Canada. Both modernizing and traditional farms contained more children than they could adequately support. <laughs> Which I love how hmm. that is phrased. It's like, the farm contains more children than the farm can support. <laughs> just Catholics having too many kids. Just just Catholics, man. Like they breed and they spread good out. Good Catholics. Yeah, they just they just they spread out. They congregate on Sundays and yep. they just keep popping out babies. <laughs> Which as per usual in Quebec, this created widespread poverty. <laughs> Which of course. In, which induced many of the people to start migrating to Quebec's cities, and then later they just went to the United States in the New England colonies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Later 19th century Quebec agriculture was marked by increases in cultivated area and productivity and by a shift from wheat production to dairy and stock raising. So that's kind of what I think of when I think of Quebec farming is yeah. like livestock. Yeah. The problem yeah. with that is that you need a lot of pasture land for dairy farming and for stock raising. So this has obvious environmental issues because it eliminates trees while increasing the global pollution of CO2 and methane emitters like cattle. So you're getting Mm -hmm. rid of CO2 absorbers, but then you're replacing those CO2 absorbers with things that emit a shit ton of CO2 and methane. So cow. A shit ton. A shit ton. (laughs) But in the case of Saguenay, the problem wasn't so much that, but the technique that they used to clear forests. So the spring of 1870 was exceptionally dry across Quebec. It was so dry, for example, that farmers across the province had mostly plowed their fields by early May of that year, which... I think, based on what I was looking, it was like a month in advance of when they're usually plowed and ready to go. Okay. 
What precisely happened on May 18, 1870 is not known. However, in an area where forest clearing operations were taking place and settlers were clearing the land with brush fires, what should have been a controlled burn developed into a massive forest fire fueled by felled trees, dry grass, and strong winds. First off, like, that is so dumb. Like, (laughs) uh, people's stupidity just bothers me. Like, there's no fire pit. Like, let's just throw some shit on the forest floor when it's really dry. And we're just going to, like, light it on fire. Well, it worked last uh, year. It worked uh, last year. You wanna- I, don't feel like, I don't feel like I can do our voice with this one because I know that they're all French. They're- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that, like, bush burning is common. Like, mm. that happens a lot. That is how you clear fields and stuff. But, but- it's, yeah, it's like it's been really dry and it hasn't rained a lot this spring. Maybe yeah. maybe take that into account next time. But nope. Nope. <laughs> Young Philippe lit that shit on fire. I don't know who Philippe is. I'm sure he's Jacques' son. We're just coming up with dudes. It's like, I'm going to blame Philippe. It was him. Witch hunt. <laughs> so the fire was large enough that it also generated its own heat-driven winds. So it was a windy day to start, but the fire is so big that it makes its own wind, which carries it farther. It's just a disaster. It's all a mess. And a everything is disaster, flammable. If you will. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everything is flammable. <laughs> yep. So the Quebec Chronicle, another one of our favorite journals, reported Love on it. the fire the following week. They describe the origins of the fire as following. Quote, The origin of the fire is attributable to the stupidity of certain farmers who had set fire to the woods in different places to make clearances and uh, burn up the underbrush. <laughs> Philippe. Duh. It's Philippe. Duh. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. It says Philippe. Duh. It's Philippe. Duh. Uh, Philippe was the horse in Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah. And so when I was like four years old, my grandfather made me a rocking horse and I naturally named it Philippe. So I still have Philippe. He's at my mom's. He's still kicking. He's got his (laughs) eyes are made out of marbles, which are really creepy. But uh, one's (laughs) green and one's blue. (laughs) That was the twist they didn't see coming. It wasn't a person (laughs) who started a fire. It was a horse. (laughs) Galloping through the Saguenay region. Torches blazing. (laughs) Breaker of chains. Philippe. (laughs) Okay, I've come around on Philippe. I like Philippe now. (laughs) You love it. Yeah, I'm into it. I sold you on it. (laughs) So the quote continues, Had these people only thought seriously of the result which would follow their rash act, they would not have set fire to the woods when they knew after the dry season through which they had just passed that the trees would be like so much punk. And then I had to look up what (laughs) What? punk meant. (laughs) So to like the 1800s people, punk is Mm -hmm. soft, crumbly wood. That has been attacked by some kind of fungus, sometimes used as tinder. So it's just like dry wood. Uh, hmm. It also meant because I was like, you say punk, <laughs> you say punk, and I think Avril Lavigne, Skater Boy. 
<laughs> Every Sex Pistols fan is furious right now that you said Avril oh. Lavigne. <laughs> Who's the punkiest person I know? Avril Lavigne. <laughs> Great Canadian, well, though. No, it's the Pogues. It's the Pogues. <laughs> the Pogues. Avril Lavigne's mm-hmm. album was the first album I ever owned. Aww. It was a beautiful little CD with a big red X on it. I felt so cool. Yeah. With my Walkman. I also had that. However, the first CD that I owned was NSYNC's No Strings Attached. Ooh, good one. <laughs> so during the first part of the 19th century, urban Quebec, Newfoundland, and the Maritimes were enhancing and expanding their established fire protection measures. So firemen aren't really mm-hmm. a thing yet. I think, like, think gangs of New York firemen like the ones Mm, that steal shit from the houses that's kind of what firemen are right now (laughs) but yeah the people who didn't make it into the police academy (laughs) (laughs) but for smaller towns the ability to protect property from fire damage and destruction was only just beginning especially since this was before widespread use of steam-powered fire engines and you obviously don't really have those out in the country so There's really no way to fight the fire. You basically just have to let the fire burn itself out. It's like a toddler and it needs to have a tantrum. (laughs) And smaller communities often couldn't afford to pay professional firemen. So they had to rely on volunteers. And in this instance, volunteers are like, well, I'm a farmer and my shit's on fire too. So I'm just going to (laughs) run. So it's like, yeah, yeah, bye. I'm out. So it's not surprising that the fire spread quickly through the 18th and much of the 19th of May. The fire was so intense and spread so rapidly that many families only had time to reach safety or the nearest area of water, abandoning their possessions. So you just got to leave it, which they do show in the Heritage Minute. I think they do a good job of showing that. They're just like, Mm -hmm. there's no time to save the animals or get our yeah, stuff like go. and the daughter is just like we can't leave everything and they're like yes you can and also surprise you can swim yep <laughs> you're learning all kinds of things today it's gonna kid. be a rocking day madeline <laughs> oh yeah some people had to stay in water for hours while the fire burned down or they were able to be rescued The intensity of the heat was such that the fire jumped alarmingly from one area of scrub to another. So it's just like is radiating so much heat that all of this dry timber is just lighting up like a matchbox. That's insane. The affected area was covering some 150 kilometers. So it's a big fire. Though I was looking Mm -hmm. up uh, Canadian forest fires. It doesn't even rank close to like the biggest ones in Canada like there was one in New Brunswick that was way bigger than this in like 1825 but I guess the Saguenay one interesting is more famous was it because Saguenay was more populated maybe it's because of that it's also Quebec um yeah and it does I'll talk a little bit about it, but it does kind of generate a province-wide movement to try and, like, support the survivors of the fire. Okay. So I guess it has more of a legacy. I think it was on the Miramichi River, actually, that the New Brunswick one happened, but... Oh, all right. 
So the estimated area was some 4,000 square kilometers of land that was burned. Over 500 families, representing nearly one-third of the population in the Saguenay region, lost all of their possessions, as everything in the path of the fire was destroyed. And that includes personal property, but also public structures like public bridges and buildings. So you've lost all public infrastructure in the area as well. The Quebec Chronicle reported several personal accounts from the fire. They reported one woman had just given birth to her child a few hours before the fire started. Her husband had to remove both of them from the home, and then he quickly moved them to a nearby swamp before running back to the house to try and save some of their belongings. In the meantime, the fire... Oh, my God. (laughs) It's like, all right, bye, wife. I have to go get everything at the house. All I think about that is, like, you just pushed a freaking baby out your vajayjay, (laughs) and then you're just going to, like, squat in a swamp. Like, none of that sounds okay. Yeah, that just sounds like cause for infection. Like... Yeah, that just is, like, a bacteria breeding ground. Like... (laughs) And you've also just got this baby with you. You've got to, like... Yeah. It's first hours... You don't even know this kid. (laughs) This kid was literally born into hell. It's just like your first hours and now suddenly everything's on fire. What if she thought she had (laughs) given birth to like a devil spawn? She was just like, oh, God, God, what if these are related? (laughs) It's like the literal version of that meme where that little dog is sitting at the kitchen table and everything's on fire. (laughs) This is fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) So while the husband, after he leaves his wife and child, In the swamp, he runs back to the house to see if he can get any of their belongings. In the meantime, the fire comes through and like cuts him off from the swamp. So he can't get back to his wife and child. And they have to wait until the morning before they can be reunited. In another story, they reported a man who needed to seek refuge in a well. So he like just gets on in there. And there he passed the whole night and part of the following day while the fire swept over his head. Even here, the heat at times became so intense that he was compelled occasionally to slip below the surface of the water to avoid being scorched. Oh, my God. Many families ran to the shoreline of the river and lakes to seek refuge, but wound up having to wade into the water to avoid the fire. So I think they do a good job of representing that in the Heritage Minute. It seems like yeah. that was the experience a lot of, of the families that were living in the area. Like they all yeah. just like take as much as they can and get in the river. <laughs> yeah. By the evening of the 19th of May, the fire had largely burnt itself out and an eerie calm settled over the devastation. But not before it had produced a huge quantity of fine ash And this plume of smoke began moving eastward. Okay. So surprisingly, few people died. And again, like, I feel like that's what the Heritage Minute is weird about. It's like one family. So, you know, it leads you to believe that nobody lived. (laughs) Yeah, they lead you to believe that all of Quebec died in this fire. Um, But generally, five deaths is the number quoted. I did see some sources that said seven. That being said, many people were seriously burned, many due to the fact that the intense heat radiation was just enough to burn you. So you didn't even have to touch the fire. It was just hot enough that you would burn by just being in the area. Following the tragedy, 555 families were without homes and lost everything, including farms, animals, harvests. 
and another 146 had suffered major losses. Extending from St. Felicien to the Bay de Haha, which is, why is, that's my real question. Why is there a place in Quebec called Louis de Haha and Bay de Haha? What's Haha? It even there's has exclamation marks. Yeah, there's a Haha in Nova Scotia too. Is it named after someone or are they just like, this place is hilarious. <laughs> so these 700 families accounted for 30% of the population. Cut off from the rest of Canada and the nearby U.S. with poor communications, the victims were reduced to building crude huts from scorched tree trunks and sleeping on the ash-covered ground. A disaster mm. relief committee was eventually set up and began distributing food, seed, clothing, and other supplies sent from parishes along the St. Lawrence and from the larger dioceses in Montreal and Quebec City. Even students participated in the reconstruction effort. They offered their school prizes, for example, books to people in need. I Aww. There's a, a record of a woman making a donation, and it's like she won this like little scholarship for school and she's like it's her donating it it's so sweet that's so cool as a result of newspaper coverage describing the terrible plight of the victims aid from across the province began to come in however it was many years before the region recovered fully from the disaster so the Saguenay yeah. fire was huge, and as is common with these types of fires, the low atmosphere assumes a super adiabatic lapse rate, which means that the temperature falls for a really high height above surface ground, which is part of the reason it creates its own winds, but it also mm -hmm, means right. that the smoke and the soot rises really, really high into the troposphere, right. and it carries really far distances. Okay. So the large so where particles, did that soot go? So we're heading east. The movie heads okay. or the the story heads east. <laughs> so the large particles will fall out from the cloud, but the smallest, tiniest pieces of combustion can travel extremely far distances. And this cloud, in particular, was moving at about twenty five knots, which, as a boat person, is twenty five knots fast. Yes, that's quite, that's very fast. Um, so we're moving, we're going, we're booking it. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's like really fast. Like if you have a sailboat out in like the harbor and you're sailing um, and it's windy and you're like, look like you're cruising, you're probably going like seven knots. Oof. <laughs> yeah. Like so the Blue Nose is 399 tons or no, that's a lie. The Blue Nose is 299 tons and mm -hmm. the fastest this current one has ever gone and it's like dangerous is 16 knots Ooh, and that's okay. like dangerous because you're going like too fast like for something that size so right so our our dusty cloud from the Saguenay fire she's a fast moving girl and she's got yeah, places she's to go <laughs> she's cruising so there was a journal written by a man named John Orman and mm -hmm. so he kept this journal all throughout the year 1853. He was originally from England, but he moved uh, so he could work as a farmer and as an agent representing several landlords administering the estates on their behalf. So okay. he kept a diary and he detailed his own farm and different dealings with tenants, but he's particularly interested in weather. So he 
keeps an eye on weather because he's obviously a farmer and he like wants to know. But it also helped because he could report back to the um, landowners that he works for and tell them what's happening in the region. And on the 22nd of May, four days after the fire, John noted, strange appearance of the sun today, rose quite red, got dark red at 10 OC, and then became pink around one, and then eventually faded to yellow, was so dim that it looked like the moon. John lived in Hmm. Mayo County, Ireland. Oh, shoot. Yeah. (laughs) So the cloud has moved across the Atlantic. And it's still dense oh my God. that it's affecting what the sun looks like in the British Isles. That's bonkers. And it wasn't just his own isolated record. So it was this huge phenomenon across Western Europe. People were making, like writing down and reporting that the sun was, that, that the sky overall looked very hazy, but the sun in particular was looking like a different color than it normally looks. So I can oh, remember that's after... that's so crazy. Yeah, so during like the Fort McMurray fire, that sort of happened mm-hmm. here. Like I remember the yeah, sun being like a reddish color, but only at sunset. Like it wasn't all yeah. the time. Um, yeah, it so did happen. Another account from Ireland said that the sun shone pink, inclining to purple through a haze during the afternoon. Um, elsewhere in England, it was reported that the sun was a rose color all throughout the afternoon. Another account described that on the afternoon of Sunday the 22nd, a very curious appearance was noticed by many. The sky was hazy and the sun was seen through the haze of a pink color, inclining to purple. I see by a newspaper that the same was noticed in Dublin. A red or orange sun is common, but never have I before seen a purple sun. <laughs> Those people who are saying purple, like, you're colorblind, obviously. (laughs) Inclining to purple. (laughs) Yeah. My favorite account, though, is one from a place called Baileyborough in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so this person is, it's really interesting because it sounds like, it's, it's one of those things that it's almost like, where were you when this happened? Like, so many people were writing about it. And so they wrote, from a very early period of the day until late in the evening, groups of people might be seen gazing heavenward, some of them betraying by their looks evident apprehension of danger, and all of them more or less emotions of interest or astonishment, while they continually inquired from one another, what is the matter with the sun? Young, (laughs) old, rich, and poor (laughs) were attracted by the strange and varied attire with which Mighty Soul decorated himself, ever and anon exhibiting (laughs) almost lightning rapidity, dresses of every tint and color, simple and compound, light pink, blood red, purple, green, blue, yellow, and then bright like silver. I love it. It's just like, whatever is the matter with the sun? (laughs) What is going on? What's going on? Also, I think this person exaggerated. I haven't seen any other report that was like, the sun was green. She saw, is this, whoever this is, woman or man, they saw the sun was pink and they were like, it's a good day to start drinking at 9 (laughs) a.m. Well, this could be my last day on earth. So... So uh, a couple rounds there, friend. Yeah. 
God's not happy. (laughs) (laughs) So what exactly is happening? So Yes, Grace. What let me let me science you for a second, okay? Let's talk light spectrum and you know, the optic lens. I don't know I that's the only thing I remember from physics. The optic lens oh, of the eye. Like prisms and, <laughs> and stuff? Kind of. It's just like anatomy of the eye, but how that helps you see. Mm. But it was taught in physics. Anyways, hmm. let's learn. Let's let's learn. Let's Dive learn. in, shall we? Grace so McNutt, s- the science gal. Grace Oof. McNutt, the science gal. It's like film. That would be a very short show. It would be me. Be like, Hi, I'm Grace. <laughs> That's about it. This is not a science I- podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Smoke, dust, and haze particles have a radii circa 0.1 micrometers. The scattering of sunlight by such particles falls within the me regime or the me scattering process, which describes the scattering of an electromagnetic plane wave by a homogeneous sphere. So essentially when light comes from a sphere and it goes through something like this, it scatters. The light scatters. <laughs> um, Usually, s- Okay, like you just sound so freaking brilliant right now. Like you're just like, let me just like dumb this down, explain this for you in like layman terms so you can understand. <laughs> I got Grace. it off Wikipedia. Oh. <laughs> I got it off Wikipedia. <laughs> nice. I'm not smart. I respect that. I don't I know I respect you more. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Imagine me going through fucking science times trying to pull out some stupid (laughs) dust cloud information. Just the science times. (laughs) Just the science times by Bill Nye. (laughs) So usually particles exhibit a spectrum of sizes which are different enough that incandescent light when going through the filter would just be neutralized so you would see it as white. So... okay. The difference here is that because all the particles are roughly a uniform size, that means that and that would really only happen if all of this dust was produced by like a single intense event like the Saguenay fire, but also like oh, the Fort McMurray cool. fires for us. Because there's so few variations in the sizes of the particles, the scattered sunlight is, is it scatters in a way that it looks either bluish or red depending on different variations of like the angle of the sun or the kinds of particles in the air that are passing overhead and the concentration of the dust. So because you have a bunch of tiny, 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 tiny particles and they're all very uniform in the sky, the sun looks pink. Thank goodness. (laughs) That's cool stuff. Yeah. And then as the cloud disperses, the effect wears off. Right. So the the sky wasn't falling, the world was not ending, but the sky looked pink for a little bit. That person did not need to start drinking and see every bloody color in the sky. You know, there was one dude, like one town crier, one town crazy person who was just like, the world will end in three days. And then that happened. And he was like, oh, my God, I was right. (laughs) And then he was wrong. And he had to just be like, damn. So it's like cool. all those Notre, those Notre Dame's people. Yeah. Uh, so despite that knowledge existing now, at the time, it did not exist. And it would actually take decades before anybody was able to connect these two events. 
So for a long time, they just thought like, oh, there was a fire. And then, oh, stuff went happened in Europe. But no one was able to connect the two dots for decades. Stuff just keeps happening in Europe. Stuff kept moving on. So in the aftermath of the Saguenay fire, agriculture in the region was severely hampered. The Quebec Chronicle reported on a law being passed to prevent the setting of fire to the woods during certain seasons. <laughs> we are passing a new law. The first don't, fire ban. Don't, please, yeah. <laughs> please uh, don't light the woods on fire, please. All the time. It also criticized the reckless destruction of our forests. So mm -hmm. it started like some environmental awareness or, or cautionary tales, um, which clearly we have listened to. And thank goodness we have because, you know, global warming. Thank God we stopped that. It's really hot there today. <laughs> yep. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. The Great Fire of 1870 resulted in an important Quebec-wide movement of solidarity, and eventually the community did bounce back. The fire destroyed hundreds of miles of forests along the shore, but that fire did clear land for farming and opened up a big part of the region for settlement. You know, you gotta weigh the pros and cons on stuff like this. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, not that many people died. Yes, Why not make the most you know? of it? So the fields after the fire were ready to cultivate, and it attracted a lot of farmers to the region. And to this day, Linnea, blueberries and berry picking is a popular tourist attraction in the Saguenay region. To this day. To this day. That is the legacy of the Saguenay fire. Blueberries. People love them. People love to pick them. Gotta have them. I know that, like, I, brush fires are good for blueberries. I know that there's, a, like, a field near where I live that is always on fire at some point during the year, and then blueberries. <laughs> what? I don't know. They just light it on fire. People love a grass fire. But then there's great blueberries. That's <laughs> good, take, I suppose. I'll take you sometime. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hopefully when it's not on fire. <laughs> the message of this podcast is start wildfires because blueberries. I'm pro-wildfires. <laughs> I do not approve this message. Well, you know. I'm a fire starter. You're a fire woman, I guess. A fire you know what happens to You know what happens to little boys who play with fire grace, and in your case, young women? What? They wet the bed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm a murderer. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> I killed somebody. <laughs> well, you're talking this about is killing the dogs and <laughs> lighting shit on fire. Next this is step the is last serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> Where else can I go, you know? I need a new field to break into. 2020, I'm feeling a little oh purgy. Yeah, this uh, is, yeah, by accident, the last episode of the Minute Women podcast. Uh, <laughs> whoops. Next week, Spoiler it'll be someone alert. else in my spot. <laughs> or someone else in mine. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I guess we should round out the episode. Oh, that was it? The That's, legacy yeah. of blueberries? The legacy That's is blueberries. That's huh. it. Cool. That's the Saguenay fire. I guess it's that's a happy ending. I mean, yeah. A lot of people mm. got burnt, but 
blueberries. So, mm. and blueberries that's the thing. Everything, don't you know? <laughs> if you go on the Saguenay like regions tourist website, they'll talk about mm-hmm. the fire, and the literally it's just a paragraph of like there was a big fire. This is how much land got burnt. Also, blueberries. We have them now. Aren't you so grateful yeah. and happy? People are. <laughs> Don't be so ungrateful, Karen. We Five have blueberries people now. died. Five people died for you to have blueberries. <laughs> Maybe seven. We're unsure. <laughs> Maybe seven. Definitely one lady gave up her books. So, yeah. you know. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, Always super fun to have you guys join in and listen to me learn uh, along with Grace being such a fantastic expert. Uh, If you aren't already following us, please do. Our Instagram handle is at Minute Women Podcast as well as our Facebook. And then Twitter is also uh, just at the Minute Women. Yeah, so just give us a quick follow, and we love to hear from you. So please shoot us a DM if you have any questions. Uh, if we said anything that was wrong or offended <laughs> you, please let us know. We will put it into our next story segment. We love that stuff. Yeah, thank you. We love to offend. And make sure you subscribe and download the podcast on whatever platform that you listen to us on. And if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, I am, I'm talking to you right now. You, the listener on Apple Podcast, just open your app, leave us a little review, let us know what you think, give us a five-star rating if you feel like it. We're not trying to be pushy, but just write us a little comment, write us a little review. It's the biggest support to us, and we have so much exciting stuff coming, so we really want to be able to share that with you guys who are listening and future listeners, so please, please, please leave us a review. Please. Okay, bye. (laughs) Bye.